Hi, my name is Evan, and I use he, him pronouns. And my name is Ian, and I use they, them pronouns. And we are... The Baker Baker Street Street Regulars, Regulars. a podcast where we are taking a queer magnifying glass to the Sherlock Holmes canon and its many adaptations. Hi, David. Hey, good to see you. Not see you, hear you. Why don't you explain a little bit about who you are and what makes you interesting for Sherlock Holmes? Uh, Well, I am an actor and an author and a, a playwright. Mostly I've written historical fiction, although I do have one novel and a couple of short stories set in the Victorian era. For me, the Sherlock Holmes thing is outside of all of that. I just love the stories from the time I was a kid. Every Sunday, WGN would play either an Abbott and Costello movie or one of the 14 Adventures of Sherlock Holmes with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. So my Sunday afternoons were very much tied up in watching one of those those 14 films for, you know, every week. And I have the, the, the actual LPs, the vinyl LPs of a ton of these full-time radio shows starring Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. So I grew up listening to, among others, The Gunpowder Plot, but also The Great Gandolfo and The Speckled Band. And one of my high school girlfriends knew me so well. One of the the sponsors of the early radio shows with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce was Grove's Bromoquinine Tablets. Something you, it's like <laughs> Alka-Seltzer. It's like something you take when you're sick. She found me a box of actual Grove Bromoquinine Tablets from the 40s and gave it to me as a gift that year. Yeah, right. So that's, I mean, that's, that's a deep cut for, you know, all sorts of reasons. That's um, a good gift. That, right? It's a, that's a really thoughtful, sweet gift. So thank you, Wendy, for that. I still have it. And then I, I saw it and I regret to this day, I saw a bottle of Petri wine when I was a kid and I did not nag my parents enough to get it because I've never had Petri wine and Petri took time to bring you good wine. And my <laughs> My father and I it just, it, they passed down the secret from father to son, from father to son. And we just laugh about it constantly. But Harry Bartell, Harry Bartell, who was the, the, the host for a number of years of the, the radio adventures with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the, the mid 40s. He went on to be a regular guest star and regular player on Gunsmoke and all the Westerns. So his voice, I hear all the time on you know, 10 years later, trying to kill Marshall Matt Dillon on Gunsmoke. It's sort of funny that Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce did not do a ton of other things that they're really remembered for besides the Holmes and Watson characters, mm-hmm. but a lot of the people around them did a lot. I mean, clearly he did a lot of the swashbucklers Basil Rathbone did. He mm-hmm. did several films. Our friend Sam Hubbard, who played Henry V at MSF last year, he maintains that the best sword fight on film ever is the Basil Rathbone small sword fight in his Zorro movie in the early 50s. Yeah, I, I love his fight in Captain Blood. And of course, the one with Basil Rathbone and Errol Flynn in The Adventures of Robin Hood is a classic. Mm. Well, well, we'll have to check that out. You also got the last bit of, of biography that we didn't quite cover, which is that we work together at the Michigan Shakespeare Festival a couple years in a row now. Well, I mean, I've, I've done fights there while you did design work. But then uh, this year I acted as well. Back to my bi- biography. I, the original Borders Bookshop in Ann Arbor had a leather-bound copy of the complete adventures from the strand. So I have reprintings of all the strand magazines in a leather bound uh, thing that I've cherished. I have all the Sydney Paget drawings and all of those things. Our edition does not have the Sydney Paget illustrations and I feel a little bereft every time. I'm like, I have to, I have to look them up for each story we read. <laughs> they're, they're so wonderful. And, you know, watching the Jeremy Brett show, you, you, you see how often they, they tried to recreate that image. I'm like, oh, that's amazing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, having the Sydney Paget. So I can highly recommend this, this volume. That's my Sherlock Holmes background. I, I, 
Um, I obviously love Jeremy Brett, but I also listened to the radio versions with Sir John Gielgud and Ralph Richardson in the roles. I watched all the late 70s, early 80s, various adaptations, the Peter Cushing adaptation. I mean, it's just, there are tons of adaptations and I'm, I'm here for all of them. The one thing I will say is we had you as a guest on our last podcast because one of your historical fiction series is set around the events of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, which our last podcast was about. I didn't think of the connection about your, I assume Nellie Bly novels are the ones set in Victorian England? Yes. What's, what's hilarious to me is Nellie Bly, for those who don't know, she basically invented undercover journalism by having herself in, put in an insane asylum for 10 days to explore the, the abuses at uh, Blackwell's Island in New York. She also went around the world in 72 days, beating the fictional record around the world in 80 days. But after she did the, her trip around the world, she got a contract to write novels. And so she took three or four years off uh, from reporting. She thought she was going to make her fortune as a novelist. And her first mystery novel came out the same year as The Study in Scarlet. And it is fascinating to see the trajectory of, of her mystery novels, which by desperation ended up leading more and more into romance because she didn't have great characters or really, I mean, the Conan Doyle plots are not always great. His characters, however, are phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Right. And so she led more into stock characters and you can tell why her books were not as popular. But she was a weekly serial writer for five years and she made $40,000 in 1890s money. That's um, interesting because she was sort of her own Sherlock and Watson. She was the investigator and the writer. Exactly. That's exactly what she was. But except for one novel, she did not place herself in the stories. And in that novel, what's amazing to me is she made herself the villain. Hmm. Oh. Yeah. There are two books in there that are really good. And that one kind of fascinates me. Although in the final chapter, she gives her own character such a backstory that I want that book. I don't want the book I just read. I want the backstory. <laughs> I want to her. And is that what you wrote? No, I, I just found those. While I was researching Nellie Bly, I found 11 novels that she had written that had been lost for 125 years. And so I, I, I just dove in and, and published those. But that was after I'd written my own first novel about her. Mm. It's tempting, though, to take that character that she created and turn it into its own book, because that would be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Onto the subject of the, they're just called the, oh, the New Adventures? There had been a previous radio show called The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes that had William Gillette playing Sherlock Holmes on starting in 1930. And so they'd, they'd done like four or five years of that. And so this was The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Petri Wine brings you Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. You got a little bit into the format of every episode earlier, but there's a narrator who is not part of the story, who introduces the sponsor and then sits down with a, presumably a retired Watson, who then yes, Watson, begins telling Watson's story. retired to California and is telling his stories there. He, he gets telegrams from Holmes every now and then complaining about the shows. But, but Watson is living with his dogs. They talk about his puppies all the time. Did the dogs enjoy the beach today? Yes, yes, they did. I love that because there's this odd reference in Study in Scarlet to Watson having a dog that never is mentioned again. So I like that they picked up that, that detail and ran with it. And added one. And added another dog. A second dog, yeah. 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 Holmes has his bees. Watson yes. has his dogs. <laughs> this one falls outside of our normal canon. Because once they got through the, the canon the first time, they decided they were going to start writing new stuff based on pulling ideas from different lore. 
And what I really like is, you know, Watson makes reference to various things. There's a whole episode, like like an episode two right before this one, called The Manor House Case, where Mycroft is having an adventure and, and you know, Holmes is having one concurrently. And you can have this this moment where you call back to the, the Greek interpreter, where he says, oh, it was Sherlock, I thought you were going to call me on that Manor House Case. No, no, I solved it. It was Adams. Well, yes, it was Adams. So they, they built a new story built just around that that exchange. So for this one, they took a, a fresh story. They took the date. They, they looked at the date of this episode. It was going to be November 5th. And they thought, oh, well, November 5th, that's Guy Fox Day. And so they decided to build an entire adventure around the attempted blowing up of Parliament with the gunpowder plot. They also describe uh, it as being inspired by a line in The Devil's Foot, which we're going to read in a couple episodes. Oh, uh, excellent. So I'm interested to see what that reference is. Mm -hmm. I'm interested to see what that reference is, too, because I don't recall what that reference is. Mm -hmm. It's been so long since I read The Devil's Foot because it's not one of my favorites. But anyway, so um, they're talking about the gunpowder plot and, and Holmes makes this mysterious like, oh, but you know what? Maybe King James was a bad dude as well. Maybe he knew about it all along and maybe it was all a trap. And and like there's a really like a revisionist history version of the Guy Fawkes story, which, you know, King James, problematic dude all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But blowing up Parliament is generally frowned upon. It's generally, you know, that's a bad, let's not do that. <laughs> they don't and like so, it in their culture. We don't, yeah, it's not something we want to do. I mean, unless you're watching V for Vendetta and that's, it's accepted. Mm -hmm. So then they get a card from somebody coming and his name is James Stewart. And he, they're like, they're very amused that James Stewart is calling upon them on November 5th. And he's there, he comes in and he's, he's descended, he's from royalty, he says. But he has a cousin, Guy Falkenby, who is just close enough to Guy Fox, and Guy Falkenby apparently is threatening to kill him. And so the adventure begins with Holmes trying to unravel this this proto pseudo new gunpowder plot. And are we are we jumping right to the end? Are we you know, giving away the ending? Why not? Sure, it's all James Stewart's doing. He's trying to to screw his cousin out of inheritance by getting him killed, by uh, accusing him of trying to kill. James Stewart. So he's trying to kill Guy Falkenby. So he, he creates tunnels underneath his own home, and he's using a lot of uh, gunpowder plot references. And eventually, he has his cousin to come to try and kill him, although his cousin thinks it's a prank. Now, the, James Stewart himself actually does suffer from a heart disease and ends up, as he runs away, having a heart attack and dying. So justice is divinely attributed. It's interesting because the Arthur Conan Doyle stories I think when they're good, there's a like satisfying surprise to when the mystery gets resolved. Mm -hmm. Sometimes less so. I mean, we've just been dealing with the Hound of the Baskervilles. I mean, there are a lot of suspicious characters on the moor, but some of them get underlined more than others. But in this one, a lot of the plotting feels very telegraphed. Oh, sure. However, it does give Basil Rathbone the chance to throw on another accent, which he always loves to do. Yes. Yeah. I like his disguise work. I appreciated <laughs> it in the Hound of the Baskervilles movie. I appreciate the Hound of the Baskervilles. It gets a little obnoxious in the second of those films, the, the the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, where he decides to do an entire musical number in a crazy accent. And you're well, like, why really? didn't we watch that one? <laughs> yes, watching Sherlock Holmes in striped pants doing a musical number is probably something to be experienced, but not something to be cherished or emulated ever again. Yeah, this this story is fun because it's clearly having a lot of fun with playing with the. Uh, sim symbology or the mm. the facts of the Guy Fox Day. The Gunpowder plot gets played with in a couple Sherlock Holmes adaptations, both BBC Sherlock and the Robert Downey Jr. movie also mm -hmm. hint at it or play with it. Yeah, they certainly do it in the the yeah, the Benedict Cumberbatch BBC one, yes. Yeah, and I think the first RDJ will get there in the season. 
also has some like device below parliament during a session that's oh better. well it's been so long since i saw it and my daughter has forbade me from ever watching them again because she's oh. so upset well, really why she's just like that's not sherlock she's very jeremy brett purist she's like that's not sherlock holmes i'm like okay but you know there are interpretations that's not Sherlock. okay all right hashtag not my sherlock yeah right <laughs> very much evelyn's very much on the that's not my sherlock and she loves rd mm -hmm. uh but for that note she just she just pieces out now it might be hard for you to remember but ian what was the first time in this episode where you were like oh it's definitely james stewart and not guy Fockenby, who's the the criminal i mean i think once they got into the tunnel mm -hmm. and guy was like yeah it, it, it also just felt all too um neat not even just neat but it just felt like obvious like guy is the villain and then he's putting these under like the other conspirators house and it's like this is too this is too on the nose right well and also i suppose if it, everything was the way it was described at the beginning, there wouldn't really be a case to solve. Right. To be like, yes, there is gunpowder below your house. Plus, I'm I'm just suspicious of people now who come at the beginning of stories mm -hmm. in, in the Sherlock canon. I'm like, you could be the <laughs> bad guy. Yeah. Because that seems like the obvious thing to do. Have that many, you don't have that many suspects here. They're, right. There are two characters. You, you met two new characters. That's all you got. Which is probably easier for a radio story when it's hard sure. to tell voices apart. That's an interesting limitation. They argue a big cast in a 30-minute radio episode. I also appreciate, I, I mean, the format of a radio show is very funny. The amount of time they mention the wine, of course. <laughs> it's a it's a 20, it's like under half an hour, it's like 29 minutes, and they mention the wine. Three times. Probably five minutes of that. I, I don't think I was expecting the the background noise of like the outside of 221B Baker Street or like right. the outside festival shenanigans oh. or even hearing a little Baker Street irregular urchin. Yeah, all I could picture was like 12 children crowded around a microphone yelling as loud as they can. It really seemed like as soon as you opened the window, all of the people on the street were in the flat. I've always wondered about that because I mean, they have large casts for some of these, but they did record these, not record, I mean, they performed them um, live in front of an audience. So I'm wondering if sometimes they got the audience to be involved. I'm wondering if, you know, how... How much of this, or how much of it was canned? Did they have recordings of some of this stuff? Clearly, the kids who interact with homes are actors, but who else is? Yeah, so I've, I'm always amazed by that. I, yeah, I wasn't expecting the the audience applause at the end because they were just so silent mm -hmm. throughout the entire thing. Because usually, if there's an audience, you hear a gasp or you hear a laugh or something. I'm also just imagining that they're recording it, just like in the the musical Annie, like with the Boylan sisters. Oh yeah, I was I was really hoping. I'm sure there was like a foley guy who was making all the noises. I I love I love seeing that kind of stuff. I had to do the the play 1940s Radio Hour one time, mm -hmm. and I was the sound effects guy, and so I got to learn all of the classic sound effects stuff. Wow! Um, I had a great time, like walking through snow as you you're holding a arm and hammer baking soda thing, and you're just right next to the microphone, you're crunching it, and that's somebody walking through snow, and it's oh that's amazing. That's you know how I'm always astonished when people come up with what that sounds like this or this sounds like that. So does that change the way you listen to these sorts of things? Are you going, oh, well, that's obviously this. Sometimes. Sometimes I'm very interested and sometimes I, I'm, I'm just into the story. I haven't heard these ones often enough. There are a couple of these episodes where there's a large crowd and you kind of go, what did they do for that? I mean, did they really pay all those actors? I mean, they could have. Right. And especially because they might have drafted a bunch of people because these were very much used to promote the films. They started the same year as, as their Hound of the Baskervilles. So they were tied to Universal and Warner Brothers. Um, and so they could have pulled anybody off of those two lots 
I mean, because the Universal produced the films. So they had all these day players who were paid to do whatever they were going to do. They were just paid to be on the lot and could be grabbed for any purpose. They described at one point Nigel Bruce as being on loan from MGM, which surprised me. Oh, no. Basil. Oh, Basil was on loan from MGM, which surprised me during the course of the Sherlock Holmes films, which are 20th Century Fox and Universal. Do you know what that's about? Well, because you have a studio contract. You sign a contract with the studio, and they would say, oh, I want him in this movie. Well, okay, but you give, uh, I need, uh, uh, what's his name, Hodiak. I need Humphrey Bogart for my movie. And they'd, you know, they'd trade off who's going to be in what movie because they basically own them until Olivia de Havilland breaks the system. She gets out of her contract and yes. sues, and she becomes the patron saint of all actors everywhere because she broke the studio system. Um, but before that, once you sign with the studio, they own you. I mean, the number of films that... Uh, people had to star in just because they were under contract. Uh, we, this summer, we watched one of the worst Betty Davis movies ever, uh, which to me is hilarious because it's it's a it's a retelling of the Maltese Falcon. Um, it's called uh, Satan Met a Lady. Oh, and, yeah. And, but instead of the Maltese Falcon, they're looking for the Horn of Roland, and it's it is a bizarre movie. It's well worth your time because it's so weird. But mm-hmm. Betty Davis refused to like film it. She was like, "No, this script's terrible. I don't want to do this." And they actually held her contract hostage. And she had a kid at that time. She needed to feed, you know, feed her family. So she she ended up making the movie. But she was very much under duress because she was under a standard Hollywood contract. It's so interesting about the contracts because my understanding is you were on loan either if the films were successful or if they didn't believe in you and they were like, well, this will tank their career and then we can get them out of their contract or get them back to us. So it's fine. Like, right. it's so interesting. Exactly, exactly. The, the, the closest example we have today are is Spider-Man, the, the Tom Holland Spider-Man contract between Sony and Marvel. Interesting. Because Sony bought the rights to Spider-Man in, in the 1990s and has clutched onto those ever since. And as long as they keep producing new Spider-Man related movies, they keep the rights to the movie Spider-Man. But Marvel wanted to use him and their last couple of attempts of Spider-Man movies were not well met, not well received. So they said, all right, Marvel, you can produce him, but then we get him for a movie, and then you get him for a movie, then we get him for a movie. Getting back to the new adventures for a second, do you know how many of these stories they produced over the eight years that they were also making the movies? Over 200. Wow. I I cannot fathom being the workload of those two actors, of Nigel and Basil. Right. Because they'd meet on Sunday morning and read through the script and any changes that would be made, and they'd perform them on, I think, Monday nights. I think it was the Monday, like, 7.30, 8 o'clock slot. I love that they were filming the rest of the time. So you're on a regular movie schedule the rest of the time, but you had to take off for part of Sunday and part of Monday to go and, you know, do your radio show. Oh, it's interesting. It's like when uh, actors have to, like, they're filming something, but then they have to go for, like, an interview somewhere or to film a commercial for some sponsored product, which is basically what this is. That's true. It is. But all shows were. All radio shows have one single sponsor like for the shadow it was blue coal coal that you can distinguish because they painted it blue or wheaties for the lone ranger or man originally they tried to do children's cereal for gun smoke and they're like no we'll go cigarettes cigarettes absolutely cigarettes mel blank in his autobiography talks about running from one radio show to another and making sure he had a pack of every brand of cigarette on his body somewhere because all the cigarette companies were very very particular that you smoke their brand when you're promoting their product yeah, I'm so curious as to like what other stars and like radio stars or like people of the time that were like in this. Because you mentioned Mel Blanc, I was like, oh, it was like 
was he possibly in this? And you mentioned earlier, like they, some series. of them would be on loan. So I'm, I'm so intrigued by who else would make an appearance on this. Yeah, I don't think they listed the full cast, just the leads. No. Right, they never do. They never do. I mean, Mel Blanc never gets listed when he's on Abbott and Costello and he's a series regular. Hmm. Same with when he was on Jack Benny. So, but what did you, I want to know what you thought of the, I mean, it's it's not a great mystery in particular. It's, you know, Dennis Green and Anthony Boucher trying to create something new that is Sherlock related. Yeah, I, I mean, my big thoughts about it are that, you know, even though the, the mystery is not that exciting, it, it managed to have some like thrilling sequences. Maybe that's the wrong word, but the visuals that I was creating in my mind, I thought were were good. I think they lead you somewhere interesting. I think like, especially compared to some of the stories they could have adapted or some of the ideas they could have ran with, it feels inventive and like fun to have a story that's so clearly cartoonishly even based on a historical event like this. But it's also like interesting, like it holds your attention. And even like in the sponsored ad breaks, you know, you're like, okay, Let's get to let's get to the good stuff. Like I'm ready. I want to hear what what happens next. Right. Like I, it really, really captured me. I'm like, oh okay. Like I really liked that part, and I really liked the story. The mystery, yeah, it was maybe a little simple, but I, I enjoy a simple mystery once in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've always appreciated a mystery you can solve in half an hour. That's one of my favorite TV genres. Exactly. If you ever go back, they do good adaptations of the Bruce Partington plans and of the retired colorman and of the speckled band. Those are all excellent episodes of actual Sherlock Holmes stories that they've adapted. And then there's one called The Missing Bloodstains, where Moriarty has someone knifed at a Turkish bath. And mm. Holmes and Watson just have to happen to be there. And they're trying to find whose towel has the bloodstains on it. And Holmes has created a special formula that will find bloodstains, even if they've been steamed out. That's how we meet him at the beginning of Study in Scarlet. That he's that's right. Him. So that's a fun callback. I mean, if they made over 200 episodes, most of them must not be based on Sherlock Holmes stories. Well, they went back to the same well over and over again because you, you only have, what, 20 a season? Mm-hmm. So you could you could do five new ones and then repeat old stories. Because, I mean, there are plenty of stories to go back to. Mm-hmm. They they do a couple where they they even go to World War One and they, they try and do nods to his last bow. Mm-hmm. And they're they're doing him and, and Watson fighting the Germans in World War One because it's patriotic and World War Two stuff. Now the big the big question, of course, when dealing with Basil, what did you think of Basil? What did you think of Nigel? Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We like Basil. I re- I really enjoyed Basil's Holmes. I, obviously, these two create a template that I think a lot of people uh, go back to when they think about these characters. I'm consistently disappointed by Nigel's interpretation of the character as a like lovable oaf. I will say, though, this one was, I think, maybe one of the few times where I've actually understood him. <laughs> I think, I, especially in Hound, my problem with Nigel was I couldn't understand half the words he was saying. And also every line went, oh, and oh. <laughs> Whereas in this one, he had to be a little more uh, clear and concise, which I appreciated. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. His diction sometimes leaves something to be desired. Everything to be desired. Yeah, no, I'm I'm totally I mean, I, I love them for the nostalgia factor of my youth, but he's that is not Dr. Watson. That is not that is that is the bumbling sidekick. And I gotta say though that they also make Holmes in the movies and in the radio series really disparaging of Watson. And I, you know, based on Nigel Bruce's performance, I don't I completely understand why. Mm-hmm. It's he's just he's totally shut up, Watson. Well, you talk about Abbott and Costello, we compared it to Abbott and Costello on our last episode, and it feels like unfortunate that that's the template. But the the great thing about at least Holmes is like he's able to point it out in a very intelligent way. It's not just, ah, shut up, you idiot. Right. 
Well, thank you for joining us for this episode. You're sticking around for our next episode where we talk about one of the yes. universal Sherlock Holmes films with these same two actors where they fight the Nazis. The Voice of Terror. So we've been the Baker Street Regulars. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.